If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 4. We are the end of Ruth. Hard to believe last time it would have been two months ago, the last Sunday in December, we were, uh, not December, November, we were in Ruth. We began a kind of a two-part series, if you would, which is, is, is the end of Ruth, and it was titled The Redemptive God of Ruth. And so we looked at chapter 3 of Ruth last time, and I just want to give you the, the basic outline of chapter 3 that we looked at. I hope that, that spurs, spurs your memory. Um, what we considered in Ruth chapter 3 was this, concerning the redemptive God of, of Ruth. Um, it was the principal need for redemption. And the second point we looked at was the plea for redemption. And the final point that we looked at was the... Um, promise of redemption. So today we're going to be in Ruth chapter 4. Again, this is the redemptive God of Ruth. And, and I hope that you see, right, in the physical redemption of Ruth, which we began last time, that you see this, this picture of God's spiritual redemption of man. And so we're going to be continuing that today. And as we do that, we're going to be looking at three points. If you if you got an outline, you can follow along. If not, there are outlines in the back. And the first that we're going to look at is this. It's the procurement of redemption. The second point that we're going to look at is the product of redemption. And the final is the picture of redemption. Let's read now from Ruth chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Now real quick, I'm going to stop. If you recall from chapter 3, Ruth pled for Boaz to redeem her, right? Boaz said, there is a kinsman, right, who's nearer than I. If he will redeem you, good. And if not, Boaz says, then I'll redeem you. So we're continuing the story from here. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Now when he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the land of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to, said to the elders and all the people, 
You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and like Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez who Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. And he went into her. And the Lord gave her conception. And she bore a son. And the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered David. So the first point, actually, I guess it would be the fourth point, right, considering the, the three points from, from last time. But the first point we're going to look at today concerning verses um, 1 through 12 of, of chapter 4 is this. It's the procurement of redemption, where we see in this picture Boaz redeeming Ruth, redeeming Naomi, and how he goes about their redemption. Let me read verses 1 through 12 again. Boaz had gone up to the gate, sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me, that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and after I, and I, and I come after you. So again, thinking back to chapter 3, right? Ruth pled for Boaz from redemption, right? Boaz, please redeem me. Boaz, again, he said, I will. However, there's one who's nearer of kin than I am, right? So he has that first right. So if he will redeem you, 
good, then, then, then we'll let him redeem you. But if not, Boaz says, then, then I will redeem you. So now we have this exchange between Boaz and the one who is near, near him. Again, quite possibly a, a brother or a cousin to Elimelech, we, we don't know, right? Nonetheless, we know that both Boaz and this other unidentified man are, are close kin to Elimelech. So Boaz tells him, he says, you know, if you're willing, redeemer. If not, I will. And to the one whom Boaz is speaking, we see in the last part of chapter f- or verse 4, he says what? I will redeem it. So initially, the one nearer to Naomi and Ruth tells Boaz that, that I'll do it. I'll redeem it. But then Boaz said, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Tells Boaz, he says, Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So in this first part of of 1 through 12, actually 1 through 6, we ultimately see that there's really only one who is capable of redeeming Ruth, right? Only one who is capable of redeeming Naomi. Now we know that Boaz initially said there is one, one who is a, a redeemer, a kinsman, right? Who is nearer than I that has this, this right, has this right over me because he's nearer than I, right? And if he'll redeem you, good. And if not, I'll redeem you. But in fact, through this exchange between Boaz and Naomi, what do we see? I'm sorry, Boaz and this man, what do we see? We see, in fact, that there really is only one redeemer for Ruth. There's only one redeemer for Naomi, and that's Boaz. Because the other individual could not redeem them, for whatever reason he gave, right, said it would impair his inheritance. Regardless of that, because the other individual was incapable or unwilling to redeem them, he, in fact, was no redeemer at all. So in this first part of chapter 4, we see this. We see that there's only one Redeemer. And just as there was only one Redeemer for Ruth and Naomi, and again, we're talking of physical redemption, right? One to physically redeem them, right? They were both widows. They were destitute. They had nothing. Naomi obviously had this land, this inheritance. What it was, we don't know. But we know it must have been nothing for the fact that they were completely destitute. Well, again, just as there was only one physical redeemer for Ruth and Naomi, there's only one who can spiritually redeem man. Let's look at John chapter 14. John chapter 14 and verse 6. Jesus is talking to Thomas here and says in verse 6 of John 14, Jesus said to him, he said, what, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way to God. There is only one Redeemer. That's Jesus. Again, in Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter verse, uh, 4, verse 12. 
And there is salvation. There is redemption. Okay? There is salvation. There is redemption. And no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be safe. And that name, the name is Jesus, who is the Christ. Also in Matthew chapter 7. We see this truth proclaimed as well. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. says this, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. You understand this, that that, that narrow gate, that narrow gate is Jesus. We as evangelical Christians believe and affirm what Scripture believes, which is the exclusivity of Jesus Christ for salvation. There is only one who can spiritually redeem mankind, and that's Jesus. There is no salvation apart from Christ. I had a conversation with a, a dear friend earlier this week, a professing believer, who in one breath said, well, I said to him, I said, the Bible says this. I went to these verses right here, right? That there is salvation and no one other than Jesus, right? That apart from Jesus, right? No one can come to the Father. And he says, yes, that's right, absolutely. But then as the conversation progresses, he says, yeah, but, but I'm sure people that have never heard Jesus but know God, in some way God reveals salvation to them and he still can be saved. And, and they're saved in Christ even though they don't necessarily know Christ and they don't understand Christ and they've never... I'm like, no, right? That's, that's not it. Apart, apart from Christ, apart from knowing Christ, right? There is no salvation, period. And so in Ruth, again, we see the, this, this one Redeemer, only one Redeemer who could, who could redeem Ruth, who could redeem Naomi. And just as Ruth and Naomi had one Redeemer. So we have spiritually, right, one Redeemer. And that one Redeemer is Christ. Now, continuing on in Ruth chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. We see this. Now, um, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. So we see this transaction occurring for the redemption of Ruth, for the redemption of, of Naomi. The one, not Boaz, the other one, he, he drew off his sandal and he gave it to the other, the other being Boaz. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said, said to the elders and the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion, Chilion and to Mahlon, 
Also, uh, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and like Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. What we see in verses 7 through 12 is the unilateral redemption of Ruth, of Naomi, right? And it's important that we, we put them together. Sometimes we think of, you know, Ruth was the only one redeemed because Boaz took her as his wife, but, but in fact, Ruth did redeem both Naomi and, and Ruth, okay? So I do want to include both of them, and if I leave one out, I, I mean both. Okay. But what we see in this section is we see the unilateral redemption of Ruth by, by Boaz. Right? And, and I have the, the, the main point over these uh, 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 five verses is this. It's the monergistic nature of redemption. So let me ask you a couple questions as we're considering the, the unilateral redemption of, of Ruth by Boaz. Okay? Um, First, what did Ruth have to offer Boaz? She was rich, wasn't she? No, she wasn't, right? She was poor. She was destitute. But she was an Israelite, right? Tribe of Judah, right? Something to be proud of. No, she wasn't, was she? What was she? She was a Moabitess. Recall from the very beginning when we, when we started uh, uh, Ruth, right? I mean, Moab, the, the arch enemy, if you will, of Israel. Pagan. And Israel was pagan for the most part. But Moab was even worse. The Moabites were even worse. And so we, here, here we have Ruth, this, this Moabitess. Now, she was saved at this point, right? We know that, okay? Because we see her testimony in this, in, this, in this book, right? But nonetheless, let's look at her history. She was a pagan from Moab. A widow. Poor. She had nothing to offer Boaz. So she had nothing to offer Boaz. But what did she contribute to her redemption? I mean, what was the role that she played, right? Did she have a role in her redemption? And we just looked at verses 7 through 12, and what do we see? She has no role in her redemption. She did nothing to affect her redemption. In fact, she didn't contribute to it what, whatsoever. I mean, if, if you want to say she contributed something to, to, to this equation, the only thing that she contributed was her poor, pathetic state, which really isn't a contribution at all, at all is it? So she had nothing to offer. She didn't contribute. In fact, she couldn't contribute, right? She, she wouldn't have been welcomed at this transaction if you will. So what do we see? It was all Boaz, wasn't it? Wasn't Ruth? Wasn't Naomi? They had nothing to offer. They had nothing to contribute. In fact, they couldn't contribute. But what we see is Boaz, una, one, right? Unilaterally redeeming Ruth. 
redeeming Naomi. We could say that Boaz gets all the credit for their redemption. Now we know this. We know ultimately God gets the credit for their physical redemption, right? Because it was God working through Boaz to redeem them, okay? But in human terms, right, uh, aside from the fact that we know it was God doing it, Ruth and Naomi get absolutely no credit for their redemption. It was Boaz that God used to unilaterally redeem them. So again, I titled this, this, this verses 7 through 12, I titled it the monergistic nature of redemption. I know we've used that term before, monergism. Uh, some of you I know are familiar with it, some maybe not so familiar with it. So what I want to do is I want to just define it, right? And we can kind of interchange the, this idea monergistic uh, uh, with, with unilateral in regards to, to redemption. Now typically when we hear the word monergism, right, it's, it's tied with regeneration, okay? However, regeneration, right, um, the new birth, right, that, that individuals experience when God takes out our right, hearts of stones and gives us hearts of flesh that we can respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we can respond to the repentance and faith that, that God grants us, right? But this idea, regeneration, of course, goes hand in hand with redemption. We've got regeneration, we've got redemption, salvation, all different parts of the same equation. Uh, but concerning monergistic regeneration, I'm going to give you a definition here. This is from the, the, the Century Dictionary. It says this. In theology, monergism is the doctrine that the Holy Spirit is the only efficient agent in regeneration. That is the new birth. Right? And again, we can substitute redemption in this equation as well for some of these words. It says that the human will possesses no inclination to holiness until regenerated, that is born again, and therefore cannot cooperate in regeneration. Again, we can substitute redemption in this entire definition, right? We can say in theology, monergism concerning redemption, right, is the doctrine that, that God is the only efficient agent in redemption, right? And that the human will possesses no inclination to holiness until redempted, or redeemed, sorry, and therefore cannot cooperate in redemption, right? Again, we can interchange that. That's what we're doing. We're applying this idea of, of monergism, mono meaning one, right? Unilateral meaning one to redemption. Now, there is, there is a term that, that stands opposite or a, a theology, a faulty one at that, but there is one that stands opposite of, of monergism, and that's synergism, or synergistic regeneration, or, or we can again uh, say... Um, Redemption. Synergism is the doctrine that there are two efficient agents in regeneration, namely the human will and the divine spirit, which in the strict sense of the term, cooperate. This theory accordingly holds that the soul has not um, lost in the fall all inclination towards holiness, nor all power to seek for it under the influence of ordinary motives. So what we have with, with synergism and monergism is this. Synergism is God plus man. It's God working together with man to, in the case of regeneration, regenerate man. In the case of redemption, to redeem man. In monergism, we have God working together with God, right? God alone working to regenerate. In this case, to redeem. It's all God. It's God alone. God plus 
not man. And we see that, right? We see this doctrine, we see this truth beautifully illustrated in the redemption of Ruth. Boaz plus, not Ruth, right? Boaz unilaterally working to redeem Ruth, to redeem Naomi. Now we're going to look at some scriptures uh, um, that um, clearly proclaim the monergistic nature of, I'm just going to say salvation, which includes regeneration, which includes redemption. Let's start in John chapter 1. We have several here that we're going to look at. I do believe that it's, it's pertinent to do so. John chapter 1 verses 12 and 13. Starting in chapter 12, it says, But to all who did receive him, him being Christ, Jesus, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, now pay attention, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of what, man, but of God. Those who are born again, those who are regenerated, those who are redeemed, right? Saved, right? Are saved. Not because man actively worked with God to secure their salvation, but because God alone redeemed. He willed it to be so. Turn over in John to chapter 6. John chapter 6, uh, we're going to look at verse 44 and then jump back to verse 37. No one, this is Jesus speaking here, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. And verse 37 says, all that the Father gives me, all that the Father draws, the ones that he was just talking about in 44, all that the Father gives me that draws to me, in fact, what? Will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The ability for man to come to Christ is through the power of God's drawing. Man's part, if you will, in the coming to the Son is through God's work, not man's work. I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about an illustration, and I, I bear with me, I'm going to try it. It might, might, I was thinking about it this morning, and it might fall through, but I'm going to try it, right? Um, <clears throat> God drawing man to Christ. We have a well. Right? I'm thinking of an old-timey well that you would see like on Little House on the Prairie, right? You know, nice and stoned up, and they drop the bucket down in there, and they do what? Drop the bucket down, Fill the bucket full of water, and they draw the water back up, right? That water can't come up the well and can't come to the person on top of the well unless that person, what, draws it. What is the water doing to affect, if you will, its drawing, to guarantee its drawing up? It's doing nothing. The water has no active part in the fact that it's being drawn, 
the one who draws it is doing it. And the one who draws it, what? We'll get it. Maybe an illustration that we can kind of think about how that works with us, right? We are the water. God, Christ, is the one drawing the water. He does all the work, and we do none of it. Now we see this also in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, verses um, 23 through 26. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, like a literal needle, literal needle, than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? Now, why did they say that? Before we look at verse 26, why did they say that? Because they knew that with man, salvation, redemption was impossible. Jesus told them it was impossible through this, through this illustration, and they see it. And they say, then who can be saved? There is no hope for salvation. You're right. There is no hope for salvation in man. And then Jesus says in verse 26, but Jesus looked at them and said, you're right, right? With man, this is impossible. With man, redemption is impossible. But he says, but with God, all things are possible. Now, this uh, transaction, which is great. We have this transaction in Ruth 4 going on, right? The, the, the one redeemer takes off the shoe, right? Get, or the sandal, gives the sandal to Boaz. Boaz takes the sandal. Well, what does Boaz say? Boaz says, essentially, transaction complete. Redemption guaranteed. You know, Jesus does the same thing, doesn't he? Let's look at John chapter 19. You're turning there. John chapter 19, specifically, specifically verse 30. Understand this, right? The cross, right? Christ on the cross is the redemptive transaction. We've got Boaz with the sandal, right? The redemptive transaction. We have Christ on the cross suffering, one like no man has ever suffered. Ultimately like no man can suffer for Christ was the spotless, sinless, perfect Son of God, God Himself. And in verse 30 of chapter 19, actually I'm going to read 28 through 30. Um, after this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, that this transaction, right, this divine transaction was now finished. He said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge 
full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Now when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, what? It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Not that his suffering was finished. I mean, it was, right? But, but that's not what was finished. The word that Christ cried out was tetelestai. And I know we've, we've examined this before, right? And tetelestai, right, was, was what they would write when a debt was fulfilled. Right? We write paid in full, don't we? Well, hopefully someone writes paid in full, right? And we're like, I got it here. My mortgage, my debt, my whatever is paid in full. Christ cries out to Telestai, it is finished. He cries out paid in full. What's paid in full? The price for your redemption. The price for my redemption. Boaz proclaimed it in Ruth with a sandal that their physical redemption was complete. And that's a picture of what Christ was doing here on the cross when he proclaimed that the spiritual redemption for all whom God would save was complete. That is, the price was paid. When God saves someone, right? We know he does that through repentance and faith, right? But he doesn't save on the basis of repentance and faith. He saves what? On the basis of this legal transaction, if you will, that occurred when Christ proclaimed, it is finished. Paid in full. The redemption price has been paid. Redemption is guaranteed. Now, verses, uh, back to Ruth, verses 13 through 16, we're going to look at, consider the product of redemption. The product of redemption. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception. She bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap became his nurse. What happened, specifically Ruth, right? What happened to Ruth, with Ruth, as a result of her redemption? She entered into a new relationship with Boaz, didn't she? I mean, there was a relationship before that, right? But after he redeemed her, she entered into a new relationship with him, right? She became his what? She became his bride. You know, one of the things we talk about is, is, is Christ in the Old Testament. We've been doing that study here um, in our adult equipping hour, right? Is types and shadows, Christ in the Old Testament. You know, any time in the Old Testament, really any time in Scripture, right, that marriage is mentioned, that marriage is seen, you realize that that is a shadow, right? Marriage is a shadow of the relationship between Christ, the bridegroom, and his bride, the church, those whom he has redeemed. So in this marriage of, of, of Ruth and Boaz, we have this picture of Christ in the church. We have ultimately a picture of the gospel, 
That's what, that's what marriage is. It's what marriage should be, right? A living illustration of Christ in the church, a living illustration of the gospel. So in the marriage alone, in this new relationship, we see this picture of Christ, the bridegroom, Boaz, right? Ruth, the bride, the church, us. It also says in verse 15 that not only has she entered into this new relationship as a, as a bride, and verse 15, uh, speaking specifically to, of, of Naomi, but again also to Ruth, it says he, Boaz, should be a restorer of life. To you, a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. See, redemption gave Naomi and Ruth a restored life. A sustained life. One could even say that they had been physically sanctified. Physically made new. You see as a result of Christ's redemption, those whom God saves, right? They enter, we enter into a new relationship with him. Let's look at Romans 8. Romans 8. We're going to look at verses 7 through 17. I think these verses uh, uh, beautifully illustrate this this new life, if you will, that we enter into as a result of Christ's redemption. We'll see where we were and we'll see where we are. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It's at enmity with God. Those who are not Christ, who have not been redeemed by Christ, are enemies of God. It says, For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh, what? Cannot please God. So if you have been saved, this is your before. If you are not saved, this is your now. You, however, now, now Paul's speaking of, of believers here. He says, You, however are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Again, the exclusivity of Christ. We see it here. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. You will die spiritually. But if you live by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, and you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are what? Here we see it. This new relationship defined. 
this, this before at enmity, an enemy of God, unable to please God. And we see the after coming into view here. It says, you are what? You are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. See, as a result of Christ's redemption, for those whom he has redeemed, for those whom he will redeem, right? We enter into a new relationship with him. We came from one where we were his enemy, right? and now we are his child. Let's look at Colossians 1, 11 through 14. We see as a, as a result of this redemption um, an incredible transformation in part that, that occurs. Colossians 1 again, 11 through 14. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has what? He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have what? Redemption, forgiveness of sin. Let's get Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, we're going to see that this, this new life gives us a new relationship not only to God, but also a new relationship to sin. In Romans chapter 6, uh, verses 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, right? When we were at enmity with God, when we were enemies of God, when we couldn't please him before Christ, right? Before he saved us, right? we were what? We were slaves to sin. That was our relationship to sin. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become what? Slaves of righteousness. You could put slave of Christ there. So this redemption not only changed our relationship with God, but also changed our relationship to sin. We're no longer a slave of sin, controlled by sin, 
But what? Now, Christ in us, through us, right? We have the power to live free from sin. That doesn't mean we don't sin, and we know that, right? We don't have to, to live in bondage to sin anymore. Before he redeemed us, that wasn't an option. For the believer, now it is. No longer a slave of sin, but a slave of Christ, a slave of righteousness. Now, the women who were speaking, Naomi said to her that, that right, he, he, he is a restorer of life back in verse 15 and said that he's also a nourisher of your old age, right? So he not, he redeemed them. He restored their life, right? But he also what? He also sustains his life. Now we know that Christ, right, sustains everything, like physically, doesn't he? I mean, Colossians tell us that, right? Colossians, in speaking of the preeminence of Christ, says, right, he is before all things, right? He is preeminent. It says, in him, all things, what, hold together? So we know that right now, that Christ is sustaining us, like, like physically, literally sustaining us. He is willing our active existence. If, if he ceased to will that, everything would just, boop, gone, right? So we know that he is sustaining us physically, right? But there is a promise. We see a, a shadow of it. The story of Boaz and Ruth and Naomi and their redemption. There is a promise that Christ, as he, after he redeems us, that he will sustain us spiritually, right? And he will bring our redemption, right, to its conclusion, which is what? We have sanctification positionally, right? right? When, when, when we repent, believe, and are saved, as again, as a result of Christ's redemptive work, right? We are positionally sanctified. Before God, right, we are seen as righteous, that, that relationship change, right? Before you were saved, then God looked upon you, and God looked upon me. What did he see, right? A wretch, chief of all sinners. And, and once saved, redeemed, when God looks upon you, what does he see? Doesn't see you, doesn't see your sin. He seems the right, he sees the righteous redeemer. He sees Christ. That's, that's positional, if you will, sanctification. We also know that there's, there's a progressive sanctification, right? This process whereby as believers, right, we should continue to grow in holiness, right? That we should continue to hate this world more and more, the things of this world, our sin more and more, and that we should love Christ more and more, and that we should grow in that holiness. But that's not the end of it right? That's not the end of our redemption. The end of our redemption is glorification. And so I, with you, if you are a believer, we're looking forward. I'm looking forward to that day. I hope you are. If you are a, a believer in Jesus Christ, right? If you have repented and have turned to him, right? You should be looking forward to that day, that day of your glorification, that day when, when your body, this body of sin and death is no more, Right? Can be no more. I long for the day, okay? I long for the day that I'm with Christ. And in that day when I'm, I'm with Christ, this, this body of, of death and this body of sin is, is gone, right? There, there will be no possible way that I, can, that I can sin. I long for that day. I look forward to that day. I'm ready for 
that day. So these women tell, tell Naomi, right, that the Boaz is going to see your redemption through to its completion physically, right? Well, God will see our redemption through to its completion spiritually, which is our glorification. And we see that proclaimed in Philippians. Let's turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Apostle Paul says this, and I am sure of this, and I with him are sure of this as well. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Spiritually, those who are redeemed are secure. God will see our salvation through from, again, initial positional sanctification through progressive sanctification. It doesn't mean that there aren't periods in our life, right, where, where we struggle with sin, we struggle with growing in holiness, right? But I do believe that those who are truly His, if we can take a snapshot of their life, we will see this, this, this overall growth spiritually in their life, and He'll see it through to that all the way to its glorification, and it's a guarantee. If you are His, if you are or have been redeemed for those whom He redeems, glorification is a guarantee. He We'll see it through to the end, the Apostle Paul tells us. Now the final point, and Ruth, we're going to look at, and we're going to end on this, is this. It's the, I struggled with, with trying to, to name this point. And, and I went with this. It's the picture of redemption. Verses 17 through uh, 22. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, him being the son that Ruth bore. They gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, as in King David. And now these are the generations of Perez. Perez being the son of Judah. Judah being the son of Israel, right? Being the son of Jacob. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon uh, uh, fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Now, why did Samuel include this, this genealogy in, in Ruth? Right? Well, historically, I think he included this genealogy um, because it gave justification. It defended David's right as being from the tribe of Judah to rule as king. However, as important as that was, I don't think ultimately that's why God included this genealogy at the end of Ruth. See, this genealogy from, well, it starts at Perez, but actually we can go all the way back to Abraham to David, right? So this genealogy from, from Abraham to David is a shared genealogy. David shares this, this genealogy with Christ Jesus. So this book, it's not about Ruth. 
His title is Ruth. We know that, right? It's not about Boaz. Well, there's this great story, right, of what happens from initial uh, uh, traveling from Israel to Moab, and death and loss of husbands and sons and, and widows, and, and back to, 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 to Israel and gleaning in the field and, and being redeemed by, by Boaz and having a baby. And this book isn't about that either. It's not about Ruth. It's not about, about Boaz. It's about Christ. What we have in the book of Ruth is we have the gospel according to Ruth. We've seen it. I hope you've seen it from the very beginning when we started Ruth all the way to its conclusion now that that everything that, that has happened in this narrative, true, all of it, everything that's happened in this narrative ultimately points us towards Christ, points us towards the greater Boaz, if you will, right? Points us towards the greater kinsman Redeemer. So again, this narrative, it's not, about, it's not about the characters we've been reading about and talking about. It's about Christ. And my question for you is this. Do you see yourself in this narrative? Now, it's not about you, okay? It, it's not. But, but nonetheless, do you see yourself in this narrative? Do you see yourself as, as Ruth? The one completely unworthy of redemption, the one completely incapable of redemption, yet redeemed. Is that, is, that, is that you? If it is you, this story should thrill your soul. I've long said that Ruth is, I don't want to say my favorite Old Testament narrative, but is, 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 is close. I love, I love this story. I love this story because it proclaims the gospel. I love this story because I see myself in it. I see myself as one who has been redeemed, unworthy of redemption, incapable of redemption, yet redeemed, not simply for my sake, but for the glory of God. I hope you see yourself as that. And if so, I hope it thrills your soul as it thrills my soul. And if you don't see yourself in this story, if you can't identify spiritually with Ruth, then my command to you is to do so. Repent and believe. Turn from your sin. Turn to Christ, the only Redeemer. Be saved. Enter into, new, enter into a new relationship with God and a new relationship with sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Ruth. Lord, I thank you for um, this incredible story, true story that you have have given us um, that illustrates the gospel a thousand years before you ever sent Christ. We can go to your word. We can go to the Old Testament and we can be taken straight to the cross. Lord, your gospel thrills my soul thrills my soul lord i praise you and i thank you for my redemption i praise you and i thank you for our redemption for the redemption of those whom you have saved and god i pray for the redemption of the lost i pray for the redemption of the lost among us that you father would grant repentance that you would grant faith and that you would save because only you can save We know, Father, that you do this 
for your glory. We also know that you do it for your good. And so I pray, God, that you would save first for your glory, also for the good of those whom you save. But God, you just don't leave us. You save us and then you, you sanctify us. I praise you for your sanctifying work in my life, for your sanctifying work in the lives of this this church. I pray, God, that you would continue and that you would continue in faithfulness to our glorification. We know that you will. You've promised that you'll do it, but I desire it so, and so I ask it. Jesus, we love you. We praise you. This is all about you. This is all for you. And so it's in your name. It's for your sake and for your glory. I pray these things and I ask these things. Amen.